Welcome back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. This week is part two of our discussion on CRISPR. If you haven't listened to part one yet, which we aired last week, I highly recommend you go back and take a listen to that first. Enjoy. In unpacking the patent dispute between UC Berkeley and the Broad Institute, we first looked at the question of obviousness. That is, was it an obvious leap to go from using CRISPR in prokaryotic cells to using it in eukaryotic cells? This week, we delve into another critical aspect of the dispute, the shift from a first-to-invent system to a first-to-file system. We spoke with Steve Hollander and Professor Shirkow to get a better understanding of this distinction and how it fits into the CRISPR litigation. This dispute turns on a very important and interesting point, and that is the fact that Jennifer Doudna's lab filed their patent application one day before the PTO's first-to-file rules came into effect. Um, and w- So what is the difference between first-to-invent and first-to-file, and why did we go through this rule change, and does this nuance affect the outcome here? We wouldn't be having this discussion if the first-and-file rule was applicable to this case. So basically what happened was the U.S. was the last country to have a first-to-invent rule. And we moved after March 16, 2013, with the American Invents Act, to a first-to-file system. First-to-invent system is whoever is the first to conceive and reduce to practice, basically showing that you can use the technology you created, that you could put it into practice. If you were able to conceive and reduce the practice, you own the right to that patent. You were the first to invent that technology. That is literally who conceived of each and every element of the invention and had a reasonable expectation of success, right? That is the, you know, first to invent scheme, right? So even if someone invents something first, but files a patent application second, at least under a first to invent regime, that person should win the patent dispute between them and any other later inventors. First to file is whoever's the first, basically, to just file with the U.S. PTO, just file with the patent office. And that could be in a provisional or non-provisional application where you could literally just send in drawings and a description of your item, the specification of your patent, and that would you would be the first to file. So when we're talking about a priority dispute in a first to file world, essentially, the only thing that really matters is who got to the patent office first. So let's take the hypothetical from last time. You have, you know, inventor A, inventor A invents something first. You have inventor B, inventor B essentially comes up with the exact same thing, but second in time. But for one reason or another, inventor B gets him or herself to the patent office faster. Guess what? Inventor B wins. Inventor A was slack. Inventor A should have, you know, taken a car, bus, train, or bike and gotten down to Alexandria, Virginia. This is all metaphorically speaking, because patents are only filed electronically these days, Mm -hmm. but, you know, gotten down to Alexandria, Virginia, and filed his or her patent application first. So in this situation, if California Berkeley had literally just submitted the information they were working on and got it postmarked before MIT, they would most likely be granted the patent in a first-to-file system. Um, Because all of the provisional patent applications were filed in 2012, that is way before our March 16th, 2013 critical date, we're still in like first to invent land. So to the extent that we have a dispute between two inventors as to, you know, who did what first, 
The what that is important for our purposes for CRISPR is invent. It is not necessarily file. Because both of these are being examined before the AIA came into effect under a first-to-invent system, we have to go through the process of figuring out who was the first to invent, which is a really expensive legal question as far as how do you determine who was the first to invent. First to file, you just basically look at postmarks of when the applications were submitted, what was submitted, does everything fit the specifications and requirements. Now we have to actually be like, who was the first to invent this item? And the U.S. was the only country left to really have that system still in place pretty antiquated and legally expensive system. As for your last question about how did we come about these changes, statute, right? You know, Congress passed and President Obama signed the 2011 Leahy Smith America Invents Act, and that moved the United States from a first-to-invent to to a first-to-file system, thus harmonizing the United States patent laws with literally the rest of the industrial world by 2011, we were the only industrialized country left on the face of the earth that had a first-to-invent rather than a first-to-file system. So, you know, we've kind of made good on our international harmonization promises with respect to our patent law, at least in some respects, with the 2011 Leahy Smith America Invents Act. And it seems that first-to-file reduces some administrative burden for people trying to prove first-to-invent. It's probably very expensive to do that and very difficult. So we're kind of simplifying the process here. Oh, yes. Greatly so. So that is one humongous advantage of the first-to-file over the first-to-invent system. In fact, the particular priority dispute between Jennifer Doudna and Feng Zhang, what we call an interference proceeding, happens to have been conducted before the Patent Trial and Appeals Board at the PTO. This interference proceeding, uh, they don't exist at all under a first-to-file system. Under a first-to-file system, Jennifer Doudna would have just quote-unquote won. What would have actually happened is that both groups would have had their patents issue. But that's kind of a separate story. That would be a lot easier to administer. It would be quicker. And people wouldn't have had to spend so much money on lawyers. The research institutions, for example, would not have had to spend so much money on lawyers. There was a recent report in Stat News. Because a lot of the companies that are using the CRISPR technology are publicly traded and they get their licenses from the Broad Institute, or in some cases from the University of California, There's been some insight into exactly how much money each side has spent on lawyers just in the interference proceeding, and that number is $10 million. And I don't think a lot of legal scholars never expected it to get to where it is, let alone an interference proceeding in reference to an antiquated first-to-file system that is solely tinkering off, and then let alone to go to an appeal of that interference determination. They'll appeal it, and they did appeal it. Is their legal right to? But it's very expensive, too. And do they really have the funds, too? I mean, they, they filed it. They filed the paperwork. It might be a tactic to try and get some sort of negotiation or some cross-licensing deal that really should have been figured out much earlier before. The, no one expected it to get, not, not even to the appeal point, but to the point where we were going to get to an interference hearing. Moving from first to invent to first to file system, at least in this particular case, that would have saved a research institution $10 million, which, you know, could have been used to, I don't know, fund a lab for many, many years or like rename the wing of an entire building or be used to fund tuition for graduate students for decades. Um, $10 million buys you a lot of science. It doesn't buy you a lot of lawyers. The parties involved here are pushing it a little far. and. 
spending money that probably doesn't even, especially with Berkeley, you don't really need to, spending money that you don't really necessarily have nor should be spending because I guess the prospective right to it is so lucrative that maybe they're thinking that if they spend this money here, it's going to be worth it in the future. But it's, it's, it's taking a very far long time and almost past the realm of legal reason. Speaking of the interference proceeding, so Berkeley did file a patent interference and it requested the PTO to determine if Broad's patent essentially covers the same invention as theirs. And so how did the PTAB rule on this proceeding? Yeah, so on the procedural level, what happened is that the University of California, Berkeley suggested that the uh, PTO should declare an interference proceeding, right? They filed a suggestion of interference, which is what it's called in these kind of wonky terms that the patent office uses for these kinds of papers. Um, The patent office agreed after kind of sitting on the decision for eight months. um, And then we're kind of off to the races at that point with the interference proceeding itself. A large crux of the interference proceeding focused on whether Feng Zhang's patents covered the same invention as Doudna's patent application. Basically, it was found that there was no interference. And the reason for that is because the same invention was not at hand. An interference proceeding basically determines who was the first to invent under this first-to-invent system. But in order to be the first to invent, you have to first find that the inventions are the same because you're finding out who was the first to invent this same exact invention. If the answer to that question is yes, then the PTAB would have needed to conduct kind of an entire trial to determine who actually invented the technology first. Mm -hmm. If the answer to that question was no, essentially if Zhang's invention was different from Doudna and Charpentier's invention, then there is not an interference, in fact, because you can only have an interference covering a patent and a patent application for the same technology if the inventions are different, there's no who invented it first. They're two different inventions. Therefore, both of them invented it first because they're not the same. So here it's more of, are they the same invention? We have to answer first. And then who was the first to invent? And so they didn't even have to go through the board of figuring out who was the first to invent because they figured out they're just two different inventions. Most of the time with these interference proceedings, the inventions are not exactly the same. They're a little different. But the idea is, are you able to go one step further with them? Is it obvious to go from this invention to the next invention? And what the board found was that moving, using this technology in a prokaryotic and then expanding to eukaryotic was not an obvious step to do. And that's why they found no interference. So while this is all going on, Berkeley's patent application is still pending, right? Berkeley's patent application is still pending. So right now, the interference decision has been appealed the United States Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. And so that's essentially where the battle has moved to or where the war has moved to. So, you know, nothing doing at the patent office with respect to Dowden and Charpentier's patent application right now. We kind of, you know, waiting on the decision from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. Papers are not due completely until, roughly speaking, the end of this year, around Thanksgiving or so. At which point, about two months later, in theory, we'll have oral argument as to the merits of the PTAB's decision that there was no interference in fact. Depending upon how that comes out, Berkeley may or may not find itself back at the patent office.
So the standard of review at the Court of Appeals is going to be extremely high, which sets a significant hurdle for UC Berkeley to overcome. Here's Felguni again with Professor Shirkow. What do you think the chances of Berkeley's success are on appeal? Yeah, so just kind of very broadly speaking, I think the chances of Berkeley's success on appeal are low. It's not so much because the uh, federal circuit is going to have to find lots of different errors within the PTAB's decision. Mm -hmm. Rather, the standard of review that the federal circuit is going to use to review the PTAB's decision is really high. You know, generally speaking, when the PTAB engages in fact-finding, as it did with respect to its no-interference-in-fact decision below, the Federal Circuit needs to afford that deference on review. So how essentially does this work out? Well, you can look at the PTAB's decision as essentially this issue of law, non-obviousness, enveloping this issue of fact, which is there wasn't a reasonable expectation of success to move Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier's technology from prokaryotes to eukaryotes. And that that core decision of reasonable expectation of success, that's an issue of fact. That means that that has afforded substantial deference on review. The particular standard is whether or not the PTAB made its decision with substantial evidence or not. That is, even if another fact finder could look at the same evidence and come to a different conclusion, come to an opposite conclusion Mm -hmm. than what the PTAB came to, that is not enough to overturn the PTAB's factual decision in this case. The PTAB essentially needed to be completely and utterly out to lunch for the Federal Circuit to overturn the PTAB's fact finding here. And that's just not the case, right? You know, the PTAB... They took a testimony from experts. They reviewed a bunch of, you know, what I would call like uh, scientific evidence that is essentially journal articles published about the way this technology worked at the same time. Each side's expert was deposed at one point and it engaged in uh, oral argument as to exactly what the contours of that is. That is a lot of evidence. That is substantial evidence. And the PTAB's decision, the PTAB's interpretation of that evidence seems reasonable. And that's really, you know, other people, they may think differently, and that's fine. But again, that's not what the standard is, right? right. Um, it seems like the PTAB's decision was reasonable based on, you know, a, a more than a scintilla of evidence, and that's it. We asked Professor Shirko what might have to happen in order for UC Berkeley to win on appeal. The Federal Circuit is going to need to say, yes, we give substantial deference There was not a reasonable expectation of success for moving the technology from prokaryotes to eukaryotes, but we still think that Zhang's invention was obvious, right? That's what the Federal Circuit is going to need to say. That's just literally a nonsensical statement, right? Like, if there's not a reasonable expectation of success to do it in eukaryotes, then that makes it not like like that. That makes it not obvious. Yeah, like definitionally makes it non obvious. So I, I just like, I don't see how the University of California is going to overcome that, right? Um, right? So for that reason, I think University of California's chances are pretty low. Uh, there are a couple of analogies out there regarding the PTAB's no-interference-in-fact decision. One of the analogies comes from Doudna herself, and what she says is that Brode now owns the patent to green tennis balls, but our patent application is for all tennis balls. Uh, but following this analogy... 
Isn't the patent for green tennis balls necessarily off the table now? So patents are not shared, right? Um, you either have your own or you don't have it. You know, you don't necessarily share it with someone else. So the kind of the kind of question is like, can anyone get a patent on all tennis balls out there, right? I mean, essentially, what Zhang has is the kind of green tennis ball patent, right? Um, right? Although one great thing about this analogy is like last time I checked, almost every tennis ball was green. <laughs> um, so it's like, yeah, maybe this is like a really great analogy. Yeah, Zhang's got a patent on green tennis balls, but no one else is playing with any other types of tennis balls, right? Right, and that's applicable in, to the CRISPR situation too. The research is going to be most relevant in. Humans and other. Yeah, right. I mean, so so you know, maybe that analogy does more work than maybe University of California wants it to do. Um, with respect to like, can anyone get the all tennis balls patent? Um, two thoughts. So the kind of first thought is that as a matter of patent law, it is not incorrect to say that an inventor can get a patent on a genus of a technology. And yet another inventor can get a patent on a species of technology. That happens, right? That happens in the chemistry context relatively frequently. So that's not, that's not crazy, right? There are two problems here with that. There's two problems with, with that greater statement in the, in the CRISPR case. Mm -hmm. Problem number one, the decision that the PTAB wrote strongly suggests that Dowden and Charpentier were not in possession of the full scope of their invention when they filed for their patent application. That is, they claimed all tennis balls, but the reality is they really only invented a couple of other subsets of tennis balls. Let's continue with the analogy. Like, that weird, you know, blue-pink hybrid sometimes you see for, like, <laughs> Velcro paddles at the beach or ones that dogs play with, right? Like, that's essentially yeah. what they did. And if that's true, then the patent examiner has a basis to reject Dowden and Charpentier's patent application. In other words, to say, your invention claims this very broad scope of things, but we really only described a relatively small subset of it. So, no patent for you. Problem number two, and this is where the plot really thickens. One of the things that we found out relatively recently is that, in fact, despite the canonical story of the CRISPR invention, which I just told you, mm -hmm. there is actually a third player here, a researcher at Vilnius University in Lithuania by their name of Virginius Sheeksnis. Virginius Sheeksnis actually filed for a patent on something that, for the most part, describes Doudna and Charpentier's technology way back in March 2012. Six weeks before Doudna and Charpentier filed their first patent application. That was obviously secret at the time it was filed. Remember, I said patent applications are secret for 18 months until they are published. But it has now been issued by the Patent Office. Virginia Sheeksnis has a patent covering his variant of CRISPR. And it was filed before Doudna and Charpentier's patent. This is really, really problematic for Doudna and Charpentier, and here's why. There's a provision in the patent statute. It is section 102E, or for you patent geeks listening at home, it is old section 102E. Old section 102E says that if this scenario happens, right, if someone essentially has a secret patent application, 
that they file before yours covering the same invention, that we are, in fact, going to hold it against you if it becomes an issued patent because we're going to consider the date that it was quote-unquote published to be the date that it was filed, not the date it was made public, right? So this means, assuming Jennifer Downa and Emmanuel Charpentier's patent application has to go back to the PTO, this would mean that they'd have to contend with the examiner about whether Virginia Sheik's niece's patent covers their technology. If the answer to that question is yes, then no patent for Downa and Charpentier, period. That's it. They're done. Their patent application is quote-unquote anticipated. That's a big problem. If the answer is no, then kind of we're off at the races. We have to kind of like determine exactly what the difference is between Downa and Charpentier's patent relative to both Sheik's niece and Zhang, at which point, even if they get a patent issued, it's going to be so narrow as to be economically worthless. already have researchers like Dr. Mandel using this technology in their labs. Um, can you explain the logistics of this? So do researchers need to get a license from both institutions in order to be able to use CRISPR? Great question. So the kind of technical answer is yes. You know, if you're practicing the invention, you need to get a license. If not, you could be liable for patent infringement. The kind of more nuanced answer is there is this wonderful nonprofit organization called AdGene, A-D-D-G-E-N-E, that both University of California and the Broad Institute are depositories to. And what AdGene does, it's kind of this genius way of solving this problem, is if you are an academic research institution and you want to work with a particular variety of CRISPR, you don't have to reinvent the wheel in your own lab. You can essentially order parts from AdGene. You can essentially order kind of parts or what we would call CRISPR constructs mm -hmm. from AdGene. And when you get those CRISPR constructs, um, you also sign on to what's called a biologics materials transfer agreement, which grants you a license from both institutions to practice the technology for your academic research. So while it's true, you know, at kind of just the base, most descriptive level that, yeah, they got to get a patent license from anyone who has patents that cover this particular technology, the reality is that AdGene essentially mediates that for thousands and thousands of labs across the world. So AdGene is streamlining this licensing process for the labs, but how, how is it working for Berkeley and Broad? Are they capitalizing right now on this, or do they have to wait until the dispute is resolved? Oh, yeah. So uh, no one is waiting around. Everyone, you know, everyone's at the table, has their money out, putting chips down, right? Both University of California and the Broad Institute have taken their patents and have exclusively licensed them to these for-profit surrogate companies that are also developing the same technology. University of California, for example, has granted this outfit called Caribou Biosciences, an exclusive license to use any intellectual property it has, or my guess is, you know, will have with respect to the CRISPR technology. The Broad Institute has given an exclusive license to this company, Editas, to do human therapy, essentially anything related to human therapies for any of the CRISPR patents that it owns. Those companies are, you know, trying to develop the technologies into commercial therapeutics. 
So everyone is waiting on pins and needles to see just how far along they're getting and, you know, whether they're going to have a product that they can sell, hopefully, in the near future. And if they do, that's going to be a monster royalty stream for the university that eventually exclusively licenses technology to them. As with much of intellectual property law, there's a careful balance between protecting inventors while simultaneously fueling new invention. Talking again with Steve Hollander. Someone's afforded an absolute ultimate right to a patent, and anyone who converges, deals with it, will have to pay a licensing fee to that one specific person. And there are alternative models as far as not having a strict winner-take-all system, where there is a more collective way of ownership and payment and that's a huge step. I mean, we're, we're still dealing with moving from first to event, first to file. But there are problems with a winner-take-all system because the stakes are so high that it keeps lawyers in work. But there's a lot of <laughs> questions that need to be asked, a lot of decisions to be made, and they're very expensive questions to determine. And for what greater good are we really doing all this for? I mean, people have to get paid, but we're right now stifling a certain technology. So we have to look into that as well. And along the same vein, there's sort of this sense out there that it's really Dauna and Zheng's attorneys who are running this show. Do you think this is a bigger issue for the legal community than it really is for the scientific community? Undoubtedly, it's the attorneys who are running the show. It is attorneys who are conducting the interference proceeding. It's attorneys who are filing the patent applications. It's attorneys who are making the arguments before the federal circuit. It's attorneys who are mediating the licenses and the sub-licenses to the CRISPR technology to therapeutic developers out there. It is, it is attorneys all the way. So with respect to that, I mean, this is definitely an issue that turns more on what lawyers do than on what scientists do. With that being said... This has all of the great makings of a fantastic human interest story, right? You know, we have two sides, they're kind of locked in battle. We want to determine who's going to be the winner and who's going to be the loser. The two parties have a prior relationship with one another. So I think the scientific community has, you know, not not to be too glib about this, but like has enjoyed reading about the CRISPR patent dispute, you know, kind of because of this human interest side. But the things that are going to determine, like, you know, was the non-obviousness standard mad? You know, stuff like that. Like, that's, that's decidedly a lawyer rather than a science issue. This is one of the many areas in which patent law and science don't neatly align themselves, even though we may wish them to. I think the science and law community, they both are in need of, especially in this context, but in these similar situations, they need resolution. And we're, as lawyers, we're looking for resolution either because our client is requesting it or so we can write our own brief coming up or just as being legal scholars, we want to know the answer so we could learn it in a different, apply that information in a different context for whatever context that comes up. On the science side, they need to know the answers so they know what research they can and cannot do because it affects their ability to use It affects their ability to use technology. Because you have a situation right here, which is why this... This is the last time we're really dealing with a first-to-invent problem in our legal context. The first really big case involving it, because it'll there'll be more, but this is the this is the last real big one, which is why it draws a little bit of attention too. But 
it is a bit more important because you have labs and you have companies that are really wondering what they can and cannot do because they don't want to use technology and not know who to pay when they use technology. So you have labs that are dragging their feet and not pushing as far as what they could do scientifically, not because they don't have the technology, but because they're scared of if they use this technology, they don't want to basically get have to suffer an injunction or being forced to stop or pay because they were using technology they didn't have right to. But it's really down to they don't know who to pay. They don't. They, they don't. It's not a matter of they don't want to pay. It's just who do I pay? Whose feet am I stepping on? The courts have not given us a resolution yet, and it's kind of taken far too long for the labs that move really fast. Science and law move at different paces for many different reasons, mm-hmm. and there's not. There's always talk of a lag between science and law. That's more created and more perpetuated for lots of different reasons. There's less of the law keeps pretty in tune with where science is going, but. Science needs resolutions so that they know what technology they can and cannot use and do so they don't suffer the legal consequences of using something they don't have an ownership right to. And they're leaning on a decision to be made. They're waiting for a decision to be made. And it's not really a fault of the legal process. It is a fault of the first-to-invent system, which is problematic, and there's a reason it's antiquated and pushed away. We had spoken to a research scientist earlier, and he pointed out that in the sciences, Really, there's hardly ever one true inventor, and a lot of progress is the result of a collaborative effort. What kind of precedent is the legal dispute setting for biotechnological innovation, and should we be concerned that we're setting a bad precedent? Because if I were uh, an innovator, in my mind, if I had something very lucrative on my hands, I wouldn't want to publish my findings until I explore all possible applications just to ensure that I receive full IP rights. But this also means that the rest of the community won't have access to this technology for that much longer and use it for important innovations. Yeah, so a couple of thoughts. So, you know, just like the CRISPR case, all of the principal researchers that I just mentioned, Virginia Sheikhsnees, Jennifer Doudna, Emmanuel Charpentier, Feng Zhang, They all filed for patent applications before they published anything, right? I mean, that's just the way of the world these days. But still, the kind of coin of the realm in science is scientific papers, right? It's it's literally papers in the journal Science, sometimes Nature or Cell. So, you know, I, I, I don't think that that's going away anytime soon, intellectual property rights or otherwise. Um, with respect to the kind of bad precedent that we're setting, yeah, yes, it's true. You know, almost every, you know, with some really notable exceptions, right? Almost every advance in science was, you know, really, a, and, you know, this is maybe not the most artful phrase, but it's really like a team effort. But let's be frank, right? The scientific community makes heroes and villains of its own, independent of any intellectual property or patent dispute going on. In fact, This podcast is coming out at a pretty auspicious time in the scientific world. This is the month where the Swedish Academy grants Nobel Prizes, right? And so we're kind of waiting for the arguably the kind of seminal moment in science, like Oscars of science, where we look at the landscape of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of papers or millions of papers published in the past decades, and we pick at most, 
three people to receive the most prestigious award out there. That is something that science does to itself, right? That is not something that the patent system does to it. So is the patent system going to set a bad precedent for picking heroes and villains and, you know, picking one person almost seemingly at random as the inventor of a technology, even though that person was really just building on work that came prior to her? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's what the patent system is doing, but scientists do this too, you know? Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm not that bothered by it. I, I also, one of the interesting things about the CRISPR patent dispute is that if you talk to scientists out there, you get some pretty varied opinions about who they think was the quote-unquote true inventor of CRISPR. And I I don't know. I, I, I struggle to imagine any scientist taking any credence in what any court has to say about who the true inventor of a technology is. I couldn't imagine a scientist saying, for example, well, I thought Jennifer Doudna was a true inventor, but because the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit said that Feng Zhang won the PTAB case, it must be him. I, I don't think you will find even a single scientist who has that particular view. So I guess I'm like less worried about it. You know, scientists, they, they don't necessarily pay attention to lawyers, and sometimes that's not a bad thing. Um, and I don't think that this is going to happen there either. So now we wait. The Broad Institute's brief to the Federal Circuit is due later this month, and the battle continues. We still have a long road ahead of us, but the CRISPR patent dispute brings to light an interesting issue to grapple with. How do we draft and administer patent law to ensure that we're giving credit to the right people while also encouraging risk-taking and innovation? A huge thanks to Steve Hollander and Professor Sherco for joining us on this two-part series and to the Fordham IPLJ podcast for having me as a guest correspondent. Thank you. Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderators are Professors Mark Patterson and Joel Reidenberg. Our Volume 28 Editor-in-Chief is Alex Kirk. Our Managing Editor is Matt Hershkowitz. Special thanks to Falguni Joshi, our guest correspondent for this two-part episode. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and give us a review. It lets us know how we're doing and really helps our visibility as we continue to grow year after year. For more information about Fordham IPLJ, please visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org. You can follow us on Twitter at at Fordham IPLJ or on facebook.com slash Fordham IPLJ. 
Additionally, you can support Fordham IPLJ and unlock exclusive bonus episodes by visiting patreon.com slash Fordham IPLJ and becoming a patron for just $1. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.